0: When a choice plant became root-bound and began to deteriorate, a young friend of ours decided to transplant it to a larger container. Carefully, he lifted the greenery from its small pot and put it into its larger home, trying to disturb the roots and soil as little as possible. The novice gardener watched and waited, and to his dismay, the plant still struggled. Our friend expressed his frustration to an experienced gardener who offered his services. When the plant was placed in the gardener's hands, he turned it upside down, pulled out the plant, shook the soil from the roots, and clipped and pulled all the stragglers from the root system. Replacing the plant into the pot, he vigorously pushed the soil tightly around the plant. Soon the plant took on new life and grew. How often in life do we set our own roots into the soil of life and become root-bound? We may treat ourselves too gently and defy anyone to disturb the soil or to trim back our root system. Under these conditions, we too must struggle to make progress. Oh, change is hard. Change can be rough. The Lord does not want His Church to become root-bound and stagnant, Constant revelation through the prophets is needed for the growth of his kingdom. There is nothing so unchanging, so inevitable, as change itself. The things we see, touch, and feel are always changing. Relationships between friends, husband and wife, father and son, brother and sister, are all dynamic, changing relationships. There is a constant that allows us to use change for our own good, and that constant is the revealed eternal truths of our Heavenly Father. We need not feel that we must forever be what we presently are. There is a tendency to think of change as the enemy. Many of us are suspect of change and will often fight and resist it, Before we have even discovered what the actual effects will be. When change is thought through carefully, it can produce the most rewarding and profound experiences in life. The changes we make must fit the Lord's purposes and patterns. As opportunity for change reaches into our lives, as it always will, we must ask where do I need development? What do I want out of life? Where do I want to go? How can I get there? Weighing alternatives very carefully is a much-needed prerequisite. As one's plans changes, in God's plans we are usually free to choose the changes we make in our lives, and we are always free to choose how we will respond to the changes that come. We need not surrender to our freedoms but just as a compass is valuable to guide us out of the dense forest, so the gospel points the way as we walk the paths of life. C.S. Lewis indicated there is often pain in change when he wrote of God's expectations for his children. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. Yes, there is pain in change, but there is also great satisfaction in recognizing that progress is being achieved. Life is a series of hills and valleys, and often the best growth comes in the valleys. Change is a meaningful part of repentance. Some are unable to repent because they are unwilling to change. Recently, I was participating in a groundbreaking ceremony for a chapel at the Utah State Prison. After the ceremonies, Warden Morris invited Governor Scott Matheson and me to make a tour of the facilities. We had noticed the extra care that had been taken to make the grounds around the maximum security building pleasing and beautiful. When we asked the warden who had done the work, he indicated that two inmates had been given time outside of their cells to improve the landscape. We asked if we could meet the two men. The warden took us into maximum facility to see them. As Marvel and Brown shuffled toward us from their restricted confinements on death row, we felt that the looks on their faces reflected, what have we done wrong now? We want to compliment you men on the work you've done on the grounds, we said. The flower beds and vegetable gardens look beautiful and well-kept. Congratulations on your good work. The change that came over their expressions were marvelous. The unexpected words of praise had given them reason for self-esteem. Someone had noticed that their efforts had changed a rocky, weed-filled yard into a beautiful garden. Sadly, they had failed earlier to make productive gardens out of the rocky, weed-covered fields of their own lives. But we hold hope for men like these who could see a need for a change in one area and had accomplished such good. Perhaps their part in changing the garden will lead to improvement in their own lives. William James once said, the greatest discovery of my generation is that we can change our circumstances by changing our attitudes of mind. Jesus Christ helped people from all walks of life reach heights they had never dreamed of by teaching them to walk in new, secure paths. Many begin their lives in such dire and adverse circumstances that change seems impossible. Let me share with you some examples of possible beginnings. The first example is a child who had an extremely unhappy home life. His family moved from one state to another until he was eight years of age. He was often beaten by his father, who was either too strict or not strict enough, according to his mood at the time. The boy spent many of his early years sleeping in buses, train stations, and cheap hotels. At the age of 14, he was arrested as a runaway. Both family and friends classified him as untrustworthy, often violent, and a loner. The second example is a boy who was frail at birth. Throughout his childhood, he had a tendency toward infection. His frail body seemed unable to hold his oversized head. His father worried that people considered his son addled, and on one occasion he beat the boy publicly. After his mother had lost three previous children, she wrapped herself in black and withdrew. In the third instance, a young man came from circumstances of near poverty— His family was forced to move more than once because of financial difficulties. He had little, if any, formal schooling. His mother reported that he was less inclined to read and study than any of the other children. Because neighbors considered many of his ways and ideas strange, he was ostracized by his peers. All of his life he was hounded by the law and found himself constantly in difficulty. Certain steps can help one make constructive, worthwhile changes in life. When you climb up a ladder, you must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step until you arrive at the top. So it is with the principles of the gospel. Let me suggest four important steps in making change a valuable tool in our lives. First, we must understand the need for change. An unexamined life is not worth living. A bishop shared with me an experience that frustrated him. He had a young lady in his ward who was not living the way she should. When he counseled her, she would bristle and say that he should be willing to accept her the way she was. She would not accept the fact that the way she was was just not good enough for her bishop, for her Heavenly Father, and, most important, for herself. Being aware of the fault and the need to change, a most important step it is. The recognition of the need to change has to be a greater force than the luxury of staying the same. Second, the facts must be authentic. We need to know how, what, where, and why to change. The gospel of Jesus Christ can help us set short-term, intermediate, and long-term goals by teaching us who we are, where we came from, why we are here, and where we are going. With this knowledge, a person will have greater strength to improve. Third, a system for change must be established. It was Emerson who said, A man who sits on the cushion of advantage goes to sleep when he is pushed tormented defeated he puts on his wits learns moderation and real skills our change must be planned and orderly our system for change is established after our system for change is established it must be followed through to completion even though it may disturb our very root system fourth we must be totally committed to our plan for change A Chinese proverb says, Great souls have wills, feeble souls have only wishes. Unless we have the will to improve, all other steps to change will be wasted. The last step separates the winners from the losers. Earlier I mentioned three examples of people living in most dire circumstances. The first young man's life was a series of continuing arrests, for everything from vacancy to armed robbery and murder. Never recognizing the need to change, he was one day convicted of murder. The second was a description of the early years of Thomas A. Edison. From a beginning that seemed almost almost too much to overcome, he was able to change and build. Though he was once judge retarded, he proved himself to be one of the greatest inventors of all time. His personal commitment changed the whole world for the better. The third tells the story of a young man in his early days in the northeastern part of this country. He was born in 1805 during a hard and cold Vermont winter. His name, Joseph Smith. His beginnings were difficult. Life was a series of struggle, not only physically but also emotionally and spiritually but there was a young man who recognized the need for improvement through change and submitted to authority greater than himself. From tremendously difficult beginnings, he sought change and ushered in the last dispensation. His faith, prayers, and works brought to the earth the greatest, most profound changes in the latter days— it has been said by Bruce Barton that when we're through changing, we're through. There is no age when we are too old or too young or just too middle-aged to change. Perhaps old age really comes when a person finally gives up the right challenge and joy of changing. We should remain teachable. How easy it is to become set. We must be willing to establish goals whether we are 60 70, 50, or 15, maintain a zest for life. Never should there be a time when we are unwilling to improve ourselves through meaningful change. For many Church members, it is often difficult to accept change in leadership. On ward and stake levels, leadership changes are necessary and often times too frequent for our convenience and comfort. During transitional times—and there will always be transitional times in our Church—patience, love, and long-suffering are needed. A permanent part of our philosophy should be, never allow yourself to be offended by someone who is learning his job. As a Church with lay leadership, the blessings of change come often. Very few of us feel adequate to meet those changes with our own talents. How grateful we can be for the strength of Jesus Christ, which helps us with the changes brought by new callings and increased responsibilities. The change from this life to a life with Him who is our Eternal Father is the ultimate goal to which meaningful change can bring us. I pray we will all seek and accept wholesome, orderly changes for the betterment of our personal lives This I humbly ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: Thirteen years ago, as a mission president in Japan, I received a call from a young serviceman's wife, who needed to see me. As she came in to see me in my office, her husband, an Air Force pilot, has just been shot down in combat over Vietnam. As she came into my office, I saw her hugging a large picture. We sat down to talk and she showed me the picture of her husband, a handsome pilot with his helmet in his hands, who stood proudly by his jet fighter plane. She sobbingly said how much she missed him and couldn't believe that he was gone. She continued by saying that she was a convert of nearly two years. She had met her husband while in college and it was he who had introduced her to the gospel. Later, she was baptized and they were sealed in a temple for time and all eternity. Her life with him had been a beautiful experience and everything a person could ask for. She had looked toward the future with great joy and anticipation, but now all too soon it had come to a sudden crashing halt. She had a great adjustment to make in her life and wanted assurance that all would be well. What would your counsel be to her? The Lord has said, For verily I say unto you, Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death, and he that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation comes the blessings. As we pass through this mortal probation, we accrue many experiences. It is in these experiences that we are often beset with problems, challenges, adversities, afflictions, trials, and tribulations. The Lord said to the prophet Joseph Smith, after a period of great afflictions, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall, be, shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The early members and leaders of the Church suffered many afflictions, challenges, and trials. Many gave their very lives for their belief and testimony of the gospel. In the journey over the pioneer trails, many children and adults were buried in graves along the way. We have the promise of the Lord who said, It shall come to pass that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. And they that die not in me woe unto them, for their death is bitter. Thou shalt live together in love, insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those that have not hope of a glorious resurrection. Recently, I attended a funeral service for a member of the church in a remote island of Vavau in Tonga. This good brother had been loved by the people of his village, and had, he had the respect of non-members as well as church members. As the funeral procession left his home and proceeded to the gravesite, the whole village followed and finally gathered on an old overlooking the graveside. The people clustered around the gravesite while the bishop and those participating stood facing the family. I couldn't help notice that while many were overcome with sadness and wept during the service, the widow sat peacefully by her beloved husband. I knew that she had the knowledge of the resurrection and plan of salvation. It was later revealed to me that she and her husband had journeyed to the New Zealand temple and had been sealed together for time and all eternity. In her life, this was not a total calamity, but rather a part of God's plan. There was about her an air of peace and appreciation for the gospel. President Kimball stated, The Lord has not promised us freedom from adversity or affliction. Instead, he has given us the avenue of communication known as prayer, whereby we might humble ourselves and seek his help and divine guidance so that we could establish a house of prayer. President Kimball also said, They who reach down into the depths of life where, in the stillness, the voice of God has been heard, have the stabilizing power which carries them poised and serene through the hurricane of difficulties. President Harold B. Lee stated in conference in 1965, Just as a flood-lighted temple is more beautiful in a severe storm or in heavy fog, so the Gospel of Jesus Christ is more glorious in times of inward storm, of personal sorrow and tormenting conflict. May I share with you another experience, a few years that happened a few years ago in Japan. A stake was being organized in a mission district. In a cause of an interview with the district president, he stated that he would shortly be moving to another city where he had accepted a promotion in his company to become the manager of their largest branch. But the Lord wanted this man to serve as the new stake president. He was called before the general authority who inquired whether his superiors would reconsider the promotion and allow him to remain in the city where he might be able to serve his church in this very important position. Immediately, the stake president stated that he had given his word to his superiors, who had already made Changes in all the branches except in the branch that he was to supervise. He asked for a delay of his assignment until after the organization of the state. Notwithstanding this explanation, the general authority asked the district president if he would be kind enough to contact his superiors with this request and then notify him of the result. Late that night, I received a call from the district president. His employer had been understandably dismayed by his request to remain in the city and reconsider the promotion. The company president asked him to seriously, seriously think again about his request, then call him back in five minutes. In that short interval of time, he would be forced to make a decision that would affect the rest of his life. At that moment, he called to ask my advice. My reply to him was that the Lord has sent one of his apostles to organize a stake of Zion in Japan, and if he had to give his answer to the Lord himself, would it be any different? He thanked me then called his employer. Early the next morning, he came into the mission home and was officially called as a state president. When the general authority inquired about his status with the company, the district president responded that his promotion was canceled and that he would have to accept whatever they decided to give him. Before he left, the General Authority blessed this man and stated, although he would go through a period of trial and tribulations at work, a time would come when he would be called upon by his employer to, make, to help make great and important decisions for his company because he had made a decision to serve the Lord rather than to accept personal gain. A few years later, this man, still a state president, became the assistant to the president of his company, fulfilling the promise made by an apostle of the Lord. How great is our reward as we faithfully endure our afflictions and sufferings of this life. We have promised, as the prophet Joseph was promised, thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Orson F. Whitney said, No pain that we suffer, no trials that we experience is wasted. It ministers to our education to the development of such qualities as patience, faith, fortitude, and humility. All that we suffer and all that we endure, especially when we endure it patiently, builds up our characters, purifies our hearts expands our souls and makes us more tender and charitable, more worthy to be called children of God. It is through sorrow and suffering, toil and tribulation, that we gain the education that we come here to acquire, which, which will make us more like our Father and Mother in Heaven. President Kimball said, Suffering can make saints of people, as they learn patience, long-suffering, and self-mastery. The sufferings of our Savior were part of his education. Though he were his son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. May we endure our trials and sufferings well. May we look to the Lord with faith in righteous judgment. Is my prayer, and I ask it humbly
2: in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As Elder Packer and I were visiting prior to the commencement of this session, he made the comment, My, it's hot today. I responded, It seems like the temperature increased 20 degrees when we came in the tabernacle. He responded, It will rise another 40 when you're called on to speak. (laughs) And, Brother Packer, you're right. (laughs) At least I can empathize with all of you who are seated up in the balcony of the tabernacle today. This week, my brothers and sisters, the woodcutters are laying their massive axes and taking their power saws to the still-stately but once-mighty elm trees that surround London, England's Heathrow Airport. Some people say that the majestic monarchs are over a hundred years old. That prompts me to wonder how many persons have admired their beauty, how many picnics have been held in their welcome shade, and how many generations of songbirds have filled the air with music while capering among the luxuriant branches. But today, the patriarchal elm trees are dead. Their demise has not been due to old age, recurrent drought, or even the heavy winds which occasionally lash the area. Their destroyer was much more harmless in appearance, but deadly in effect. The culprit is known as the bark beetle, carrier of the fatal Dutch elm disease. This malady has destroyed vast elm forests, throughout North America, and throughout Europe. Its march continues onward. Every effort at control has proved futile. Dutch elm disease usually begins with a wilting of the young leaves in the upper part of the tree, and then the disease spreads downward to the main branches, and then about midsummer, all of the leaves begin to turn yellow, wilt, and fall. Life ebbs, death approaches, and a forest is consumed. The bark beetle has taken its terrible toll. How like the elm trees is man! From a minute seed and in accordance with the divine plan, we grow, we're nurtured, we mature. The bright sunlight of heaven, the rich blessings of earth are ours. In our private forest of family and friends, life is richly rewarding and deeply satisfying. Then suddenly, without warning, there appears in our generation a cunning and a diabolical enemy, pornography. Pornography like the beetle. Even the bark beetle is the carrier of a dread disease, a fatal disease. I shall entitle it pernicious permissiveness. At first, we scarcely know we become infected. We laugh and make lighthearted comment about the off-color story or the clever cartoon. With evangelical zeal, we protect the so-called rights of those who would contaminate with smut and destroy all that we regard as sacred. You see, the pornography beetle has already started to perform its deadly work, undercutting our will, destroying our immunity, and stifling the upward reach within each one of us. Well, might you ask, Oh, how serious is pernicious permissiveness? Let's examine the facts. Let's look at them. Let's listen to them and then let's act. Pornography, the carrier, is big business. It is mafia spawned. It is contagious. It is addicting. The FBI reported that in North America alone last year, over 2.4 billions of dollars were expended for hardcore pornography. Some place the total as high as 4 billions of dollars a veritable fortune siphoned away from noble purpose and diverted to a devilish use. Apathy is widespread. Unfortunately, our county and state statutes are weak, sentences are light, and the rich rewards make minuscule the risk of the pornographer. In fact, The FBI also reported another interesting fact, that namely, pornography has been found to be related to sex crimes. In a large western city in America, last year, 78% of those persons who were arrested for rape or sex-related crimes had in their possession some type of pornographic material. You see, unfortunately, some printers, some publishers, prostitute their presses by printing millions of pieces of pornography every day of the year. No expense is spared. High quality vellum paper, the full spectrum of four color process printing, are combined to produce a product certain to be read and then read again and read again nor are the movie producers, the television programmers, the entertainers free from taint. Gone are the restraints of yesteryear. The quest today is for so-called realism. One movie actor, well known to you and me, a real box office star, put it this way. He said, The boundaries of permissiveness have been stretched to the limit. Said he, The last movie I made was filthy. When I read the script, I knew it was filthy, and it is filthy yet. However, the studio showed the film to a Friday night audience at a sneak preview, and the audience roared its approval. So I suppose that's what the public wants. Another star joined in by saying, Producers are like publishers. They're in the business to make money. And you make money today by giving the public what the public wants. There are some people who attempt to uh, differentiate between softcore and hardcore pornography. This is useless. One leads to the other. And the differentiating line is invisible. But the effort to do so brings to mind the truth of Alexander Pope's classic statement from his essay on man when he declared that vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with her face, first we endure, then pity, then embrace. Unfortunately, the pornography beetle isn't content to contaminate lives. He destroys entire neighborhoods. Come with me for a moment to a place familiar in song, dear to the heart of many Americans, New York's famous Broadway and 45th Street. There, standing forlornly alone in a little tiny island surrounded by bustling traffic and a horde of pedestrians, is a statue in heroic size of Father Francis P. Duffy, well-remembered chaplain of the fighting 69th of World War I fame. He stands there, dressed in the uniform of the battlefield, a canteen on his side from which he can administer comfort to the dying, and a Bible that he might provide them spiritual hope. As you look at the statue, the songs of the period flood through memory's corridors. You remember them. Over there, kakakakati keep the home fires burning but best of all give my regards to broadway why if those fallen warriors who remembered walking up broadway and singing that song were they to return today and stand at the base of that statue with you and with me what sight would their eyes behold what would meet our gaze on every hand x-rated movies Massage parlors, sex shops, their gaudy neon signs flashing their facade of allure. Father Duffy's statue stands surrounded by sin and engulfed by evil. The pornography beetle has just about destroyed that particular scene of Americana. He moves relentlessly closer to your city and to your neighborhood and to your home, and to your family. Dr. Lawrence M. Gould, President Emeritus of Carleton College, warned us. He said, I believe that the biggest threat to our future will not be an atomic bomb. It will not be a guided missile. I think our civilization will not die that way. He said, I believe our civilization will die when we no longer care. And then he quoted from Arnold Toynbee, who reported that 19 of 21 civilizations, which have flourished and then perished, have done so through decay from within rather than from assault from without. There were no flags flying. There were no shouts of exclamation when those civilizations died. It occurred slowly, quietly, in the dark, when no one was aware. Just a few weeks ago, I was looking at the movie section of a large metropolitan daily. I read the account of an interview between a reporter and a leading actress in a movie, soon to be released in your cities and in ours. The actress indicated to the reporter, that at first she objected objected rather strenuously to the script, the part she was called upon to play. She was to be the sexual companion of a 14-year-old boy. In her own words, she said, I told the producer, no way would I participate in those scenes. And then he assured me, she said, that the boy's mother would be present watching during every intimate scene. So I agreed. I asked the question, Would a mother stand by watching? Were her 14-year-old boy to be embraced by a cobra? Would she permit him to have just a little taste of arsenic or perhaps a swallow of strychnine? Mothers, would you? Fathers, would we? Their courses through our minds, the statement of the Lord, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen gathereth her brood beneath her wings? But she would not. Behold, thy house is left unto thee desolate. Those ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah emerge from seldom-read pages of dusty Bibles as real, live cities, in a real, live world, depicting a real, live malady, pernicious permissiveness. We have the responsibility to stand as a bulwark between the onward march of the pornography beetle and all that we hold sacred and precious in our lives. May I suggest just three suggestions for our battle plan? Number one, a return to righteousness, An awareness of who we are and what God expects us to become will prompt us to pray. We will discover a fresh and ancient truth. Wickedness never was happiness. Let not that evil one dissuade. That still, small voice can still be our companion. It is unerring in its direction. It is all-encompassing in its purpose, a return to righteousness. Number two, a quest for the good life. I speak not of the fun life, the popular life, the sophisticated life. I speak of eternal life, life everlasting with mother, father, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, husband, wife, together, forever and forever. Oh, a quest for the good life. And third, a personal pledge that we will wage and win the war against pornography. Let's take for our battle standard those famous four words from an earlier period in America, that ensign which was emblazoned on a flag and held firmly on the lips of every soldier, quote, Don't tread on me. And then make good that pledge. We can take confidence, my brothers and sisters, from Joshua, that biblical leader who courageously said, Choose you this day whom ye will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. May we do so. And may we have lives that are pure, hearts that are sweet, voices that are heard and actions that are felt. And then, we with Joshua of old will safely cross over Jordan into our own promised land. The pornography beetle will be halted in his deadly course. Pernicious permissiveness will have met its match, and we will find our promised land to be peace in this life and eternal life in the world to come. Such would be my humble, my earnest prayer for all of us, and I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.
3: When we follow the counsel of our leaders, to read and study the scriptures. Benefits and blessings of many kinds come to us. This is the most profitable of all study in which we could engage. The portion of scriptures known as the Old and New Testaments is often referred to as the great literature of the world. These books have been regarded as scientific treatises, as philosophic dissertations and also as historical records. But if we understand the true purpose of these and other scripture, we realize that they are really the fundamental literature of religion. The scriptural library contains the basic declarations concerning God and his children and the interrelationship between them. Throughout, throughout each of the books there is an appeal to believe and have faith in God, the Eternal Father, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. And from the first to the last of these books of scripture is the call to do the will of God and keep his commandments. Scriptures contain the record of the self-revelation of God, and through them God speaks to man. Where could there be more profitable use of time than reading from the scriptural library the literature that teaches us to know God and understand our relationship to him? Time is always precious to busy people. And we are robbed of its worth when hours are wasted in reading or viewing that which is frivolous and of little value. Reading habits vary widely. They are rapid readers and slow readers, some who read only small snatches at a time and others who persist until the book is finished. Those who delve into the scriptural library, however, find that to understand requires more than casual reading or perusal. There must be concentrated study. It is certain that one who studies the scriptures every day accomplishes far more than one who devotes considerable time one day and then lets days go by before continuing. Not only should we study each day, but there should be a regular time set aside when we can concentrate without interference. There is nothing more helpful than prayer to open our understanding of the scriptures. Through prayer, we can attune our minds to seek the answers to our searchings. The Lord said, and this has been referred to previously today, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it it shall be opened unto you. Herein is Christ's reassurance that if we will ask, seek, and knock— The Holy Spirit will guide our understanding if we are ready and eager to receive. Many find that the best time to study is in the morning, after a night's rest has cleared the mind of the many cares that interrupt thought. Others prefer to study in the quiet hours, after the work and worries of the day are over and brushed aside thus ending the day with a peace and tranquility that comes by communion with the scriptures. Perhaps what is more important than the hour of the day is that a regular time be set aside for study. It would be ideal if an hour could be spent each day, but if that much cannot be had, A half hour on a regular basis would result in substantial accomplishment. A quarter of an hour is little time, but it is surprising how much enlightenment and knowledge can be acquired in a subject so meaningful. The important thing is to allow nothing else to ever interfere with our study. Some prefer to study alone, but companions can study together profitably. Families are greatly blessed when wise fathers and mothers bring their children about them, read from the pages of the scriptural library together, and then discuss freely the beautiful stories and thoughts according to the understanding of all. Often, youth and little ones have amazing insight into and appreciation for the basic literature of religion. We should not be haphazard in our reading, but rather develop a systematic plan for study. There are some who read to a schedule of a number of pages or a set number of chapters each day or week. This may be perfectly justifiable and may be enjoyable if one is reading for pleasure, but it does not constitute meaningful study. It is better to have a set amount of time to give scriptural study each day than to have a set amount of chapters to read. Sometimes we find that the study of a single verse— will occupy the whole time. The life, acts, and teachings of Jesus can be read rapidly. The stories are simple in most instances, and the stories are simply told. The Master used few words in his teachings, but each one is so concise in meaning that together they portray a clear image to the reader. Sometimes, however, many hours might be spent in contemplation of profound thoughts expressed in a few simple words. There was an incident in the life of the Savior that was mentioned by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A significant part of the story is told by Mark in only two short verses and five words of the following verse. Let me, let me read them to you. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, that is, when he saw Jesus, He fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him. The reading time of that portion of the story is about thirty seconds. It is short and uncomplicated. The visual picture is clear, and even a child could repeat it without difficulty. But as we spent time in thought and contemplation, a great depth of understanding and meaning comes to us. We conclude that this is more than a simple story about a little girl who was sick and Jesus went to lay his hands on her. Let me read these words to you again. And behold, the word behold is used frequently in scripture with a wide variety of meanings. Its use in this instance designates suddenness or unexpectedness. Jesus and those who were with him had just recrossed the Sea of Galilee and a multitude of people had been, had been waiting, met him on the shore near Capernaum, and, behold, suddenly and unexpectedly, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue. The large synagogues of that day were presided over by a college of elders under the direction of a chief or a ruler. This was a man of rank and prestige whom the Jews looked upon with great respect. Matthew doesn't give the name of this chief elder, but Mark identifies him by adding to his title the words Jairus by name. Nowhere else in the scriptures does this man or his name appear except on this occasion. Yet his memory lives in history because of a brief contact with Jesus. Many, many lives have become memorable that otherwise would have been lost in obscurity had it not been for the touch of the Master's hand that made a significant change of thought and action and a new and better life. And when he saw him, That is, when Jairus saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. This was an unusual circumstance for a man of rank and prestige, a ruler of the synagogue, to kneel at Jesus' feet, at the feet of one considered to be an itinerant teacher with the gift of healing, Many others of learning and prestige saw Jesus also, but ignored him. Their minds were closed. Today is not different. Obstacles stand in the way of many to accept him. And Jairus besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. This is typical of what happens frequently when a man comes to Christ not so much for his own need, but because of the desperate need of a loved one. The tremor we hear in Jairus' voice as he speaks of my little daughter stirs our souls with sympathy as we think of this man of high position in the synagogue on his knees before the Savior. Then comes a great acknowledgment of faith. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed, and she shall live. These are not only the words of faith of a father torn with grief but are also a reminder to us that whatever Jesus lays his hands upon lives. If Jesus lays his hands upon a marriage, it lives. If he is allowed to lay his hands on the family, it lives. The words, And Jesus went with him, follow. We would not suppose that this event had been within the plans for the day. The Master had come back across the sea, where the multitude was waiting on the shore for him to teach them. And behold, suddenly and unexpectedly, he was interrupted by the plea of a father. He could have ignored the request because many others were waiting. He could have said to Jairus that he would come to see his daughter tomorrow. But Jesus went with him. If we follow in the footsteps of the Master, would we ever be too busy to ignore the needs of our fellow men? It is not necessary to read the remainder of the story. When they got to the home of the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus took the little girl by the hand and raised her from the dead. In like manner, he will lift and raise every man to a new and better life, who will permit the Savior to take him by the hand. I am grateful for the library of Scripture through which a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ can be learned. By devoted study, I am grateful that in addition to the Old and New Testaments, the Lord, through prophets of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has added other revealed scripture as additional witnesses for Christ. The Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, all of which I know to be the word of God, these bear witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. May the Lord bless us in our study and righteous quest to seek him, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ.